The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise in banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I'll let you into a dirty little secret. I'm a bit of a business failure. Well, at least in my own eyes, for the last 15 years, I've been trying to build small businesses into large businesses in journalism, online. And I helped co-found interest.co.nz and newsroom.co.nz, which were, on the face of it, successful businesses that washed their faces. But they didn't really grow that much. And they certainly didn't grow into the really, really big things that I had ambitions for. And when I look back on it, if I'm being brutally honest, I haven't actually made any money out of that or out of my main profession as a financial journalist. I made enough money to pay the bills and I saved a little bit here and there, but I know that my household worth now is almost completely because of leveraged gains on residential land in a few places. And I, like a lot of New Zealanders, have sort of worked this out and have begun to wonder whether there's any point and having a real job. Why bother trying to work your guts out and be an expert in your particular area, try to get yourself a high salary, put aside some salary, which by the way is taxed before you get it, and then hope by the time you retire that you've got a big enough nest egg that you can have a comfortable life. When actually, for most New Zealanders who really understand how New Zealand works, they know that you buy residential land or commercial property as fast as you can, as early as you can, and you build up as much debt against it as you possibly can because you know that history says over the last 30 years or so that the value of that land will rise much, much faster than most other asset values. And particularly when you leverage it, your equity grows at spectacular rates. And up until the last six months or so at least, You haven't seen many falls back. So there's a lot of volatility, but it's always volatility in the right direction. Prices tend to ratchet up and then hold there rather than go up and down violently like you see in the stock market. And what that means is people like me, well, we give up on trying to build big businesses. We sort of hang in there, hold on to our small zombie-like businesses, let them stagger on until, until the end retire, and then make the real money or take the real money out of our residential property portfolios. And this becomes, once enough people understand this, a real problem for the economy. Why? Well, of course, I'm not actually making anything that I can sell overseas. I'm not making something absolutely brilliant that earns me or a whole bunch of people a really high real wage. To really become rich, a country needs to have high productivity growth. It needs to people have people who are earning very high wages and growing those wages quickly. 
And we know the uh, uh, formula to do that. It means governments and businesses investing a lot in infrastructure, in research and development, in technology adoption, and in particular, in competing hard and being outward-looking with the rest of the world. We know that companies that are on the edge of the economy, if you like, that are trading with the rest of the world tend to be more productive. They tend to invest in their businesses more and therefore, the wages and the growth from those businesses, those real businesses, are what contribute to the growing real wealth of an economy and of our society. But in New Zealand, because, again, we're the only country in the world that does not tax capital gains, at least countries that we would compare ourselves against, we have developed an economy that makes it easy for us to not have to worry about whether our real jobs and our real businesses can make too much money. And that is a problem in the long run. And we can see that in our productivity stats and in what we're doing. For example, in the last two and a half years, anyone who owned a property and who checked the value of that property every week or two could see that they made more money from their house price or their commercial property price going up than they did from the value they might make, or certainly the savings they'd make, from their real job. So that's that's fine. You could argue, just don't look at homes.co.nz and don't care about that too much. Just do what you want to do and try and do the best you can. However, as we find out in this week's episode of When the Facts Change, you can actually make money if you buy the right businesses, invest in them, and in particular, look to grow them. I talk to Chris Small, the Managing Director of ABC Business Sales this week. He talks about this tendency we have in New Zealand to not want to be really, really successful, to be aggressively ambitious and to grow our businesses because we know that it's the businesses that grow, that get scale, that you invest in and that connect to the rest of the world that are the ones that grow productivity the most. But we're not seeing enough of that. New Zealand has a relatively low, what they call, up and out ratio. It's really easy to start a business here, and lots of people do, but then they tend to just hold on to them, and they stagger along, zombie-like, never actually being sick enough to be put out of their misery, often because they're guaranteed by residential property, and that the loans the bank has taken out are against that residential property, and because they're always rising in value, you've always got that buffer to work with. And you've also got, for a lot of people, uh, no particular need to grow and not nearly as much competition. Let's say if you're in the United States and you're running a small business, it doesn't take long to be put out of business by the big chain with the economies of scale and the better technology and the better marketing and the better brand. But in New Zealand, we can, particularly in a small town, small city, just be confident we've got the best little widget maker in town, with not too much competition, no need to invest our spare money in technology or R&D, or even trying to build that business overseas, just have a quiet life. So we create these businesses, they stagger on, zombie-like, they don't grow up, they don't go out. In other countries, you see a high proportion of those small businesses that start actually go up and go from one or two or three employees, maybe a million or two in revenue per year, up to 100, 200, 500 employees and 100, 200 million dollars in revenue. 
They're the ones that get the real productivity growth, that create these high-paid jobs, and that make, collectively, a country rich. That's this week on When the Facts Change. How do we turn our zombie small businesses into productivity machines? This week on When the Facts Change. So I went to have a chat with Chris Small, who is the Managing Director of ABC Business Sales in Auckland, in his little office where he's no doubt handled lots and lots of deals. I wanted to find out why New Zealand businesses should just sort of hang on and never actually go out of business or, unlike overseas, get taken over. So we have a much lower ratio of those who go up and get much bigger and more successful or those that go out compared to overseas. And I asked Chris, why is that? I could start off by saying a lot of New Zealand business owners um, are focused on the three Bs being the batch, the boat, maybe the BMW. And once they've reached that goal, they sit there and go, you know what, I've made it. And they're um, very happy to live that, continue to live that lifestyle. Probably see taking that next step as maybe slightly too stressful and potentially um, as an element of too much risk. It might put some of those three Bs at risk. Um, so that would be my first comment in that regard. So overseas, what happens is if you're running a relatively small business, at some point you're going to have to compete against a big guy, some franchise chain or some multinational who has the scale and the sophistication to out-compete you, really. Uh, maybe they can uh, get a better deal from the supplier or um, they've got more efficient supply chains or a better technology or whatever it is. And normally those people... They sell out to the big guy or maybe they merge with some other smaller guys and compete with the big guy and or maybe they have a bad year and they go under. But here that isn't so much the case. Why is that? Again, good question. I think a lot of New Zealand business is built on relationships and some of these relationships, especially for the baby boomers, go back 30-odd years. Um, so a multinational can come to New Zealand, but New Zealanders are very good at dealing with people they've got good relationships with, and I think that's what's held private New Zealand business in pretty good stead, that they are generally pretty good relationship builders and they've managed to be able to fend off the multinationals based on strong relationships and service. And also New Zealand business owners aren't often too greedy either, so they will hang in there, compete on price, use that number eight wire mentality to fend off the bigger boys and find ways to still compete. What's that about? Is it an ambition issue or are there there some incentives that are different? A couple of things. I think New Zealand's got this culture of tall poppy. So there's actually people out there who are scared of doing too well because they know their neighbour, their friend, their mate will almost look at them and um, not discuss, quite discuss, but be the the green-eyed monster and go, geez, look at him, he's got all this money and he's doing this, that's that's no good. I don't want to be friends with him anymore. Well, he's turned into a show-off. Um, and also, New Zealanders just um, – our culture is not motivated to be number one in the world. We don't think global. We think very domestic. We might think, oh, betting Australia is a good result, but we never think about being number one in the world. We might think about let's be bigger than Australia, but we never think about let's be the biggest in the world. So it's a combination of two things in my thoughts. Is one, we're not heavily motivated enough to be number one in the world. And two, that tall poppy syndrome really is quite inherent in our culture and probably prevents a lot of really great businesses wanting to strive for the top. You put, if you're an American, what do you want to do? You want to be number one in the world. We don't think like that in New Zealand. 
Yeah, because I can understand that lack of ambition, but normally when that happens, you get out-competed out by the other guy who does have the ambition, mm -hmm. particularly if you're in an internationally exposed business. Um, but how is it our smaller businesses can get away with it, so to speak, that they don't you know, eventually go bust? I think the geographical isolation of New Zealand plays a huge role. Um, some of the big multinationals were just a little pimple in their world and they don't probably really put a lot of emphasis um, into us. So we, they come here, as long as they've got a presence, they tick that box. I mean, a good example is Amazon are here and they've got presence here. Um, but we've still got a lot of other internet providers and companies who compete against them who are still doing okay. You know, and, and, and when you think about what you would have thought Amazon would just whip it. But, but they're not, and that's because, you know, Jeff Bezos in America is probably not too focused on New Zealand. He's more worried about his American market, maybe his Asian market. So I think just through being a small country and a lack of interest from the big boys, we've probably managed to um, continue to have our privately owned companies, you know, run reasonably successfully. And they are successful and able to make profits, and that's where I'm curious as these businesses develop, you know, a lot of people have done a lot of hard work to build them up and build those relationships and those supply chains and customer lists and all of that. Um, and they must, particularly towards the, you know, uh, the owners are in their 50s and 60s, sometimes they can be generating quite a bit of cash. And normally, I would have thought that once you're generating your cash, you think, right, I'm going to reinvest the cash in the business and grow it or maybe buy the the other guy, um, what are you seeing with that extra cash that gets that is a, generated? There's a great question, Bernard, and much to my disdain, they'll go out and buy more houses. They'll buy another batch, they'll buy a commercial property, or they'll buy their daughter or their son a residential house in Auckland, which, as we all know, sucks up a fair bit of capital these days. Um, again, it's just <clears throat> New Zealanders have been taught that the best investment they can make is to buy more property, so rather than reinvest in their business. Um, so there's a, there's a certain element of um, sensibility there in regards to you want to de-risk yourself from just being solely reliant on one asset, so I get that, but to the extent that every cent goes out into a, what I'd call a you know, least, least productive asset, e.g. a New Zealand house, residential house, that's frustrating, but that, we see it in real life and that's where the money goes. It doesn't even really hit our share market. It, a lot of it gets put into New Zealand property. So you've been involved in banking um, as well as this mm. um, business uh, acquisition, merger, capital investment space. Is it true that people just can always make better money out of rental property or property leveraged up than they can out of the business? Great question, Ben, and a bit of a, a, bit of a sore point for me. I would strongly suggest that Kiwis were far better off when their first investment investing in a business versus investing in a house. Just to give you a, a bit of data around that, the average investment in a business, if you buy a business for, let's say, $500,000, the return on that $500,000 will be approximately 30%. So 30% is $150,000. So that's a 30% return. If you put that $500,000 into a rental property, that yield on that rental property, let's talk Auckland, will be 2 or 3%. Let's be generous and give it 3%. Well, 3% of 500000 is $15,000. So you've got a $150,000 return versus a $15,000 return for the same amount of capital. Um, you know, I really think New Zealanders are missing a trick here, and it's almost taken upon myself to try and educate the market. 
there is inherent risks and more risks in buying a business and there is an investing in a house, but the risks do not outweigh by when you think 30% versus 3% return is almost, that's a 10 times difference. It's not that much. Just with my devil's advocate hat on, um, people who do buy these rental properties say, ah, I don't really care about the cash surplus or deficit after the rent. It's all about the capital gain because it's tax-free and because the government will never change its mind on tech capital gains, I can leverage it up. And there was a time when I could borrow 90%. Not so much anymore. The Reserve Bank's clapped down on that and the banks are being a bit more cautious. But even then, um, I need to put a little bit of equity in. And let's say I get a 10% rise in house prices or 45% like it was in 2020 and 2021. The returns that are leveraged, not having to pay tax, are better, or are they, than having your own business? Yep, good question. Firstly, you can also use debt to buy a business. So the average ratio of debt when you buy a business is 50%. So you can also leverage up to buy a business. Um, and in the same way that a house has capital gain, businesses can, can have capital gains as well. So businesses are sold general multiples of EBIT or EBITDA, which is you know, a term for profit. If, say, you buy a business for three times, 300 grand, it's 900 grand. If you turn that profit into 500 grand in two years, it'll be three times 500. So that's $1.5 million, $600,000 capital gain in two years, plus you've leveraged it up at 50%. So if you look at that leverage gain on equity, that's very strong. So it's not dissimilar to property. Again, people haven't been educated. A lot of people don't even realise you can borrow money against a business. Because whenever I think of the banks in the last few years, I think, oh, they've just ploughed all their money into into rental property and first home buyers. And actually, uh, the share of overall of bank lending into mortgages versus business lending or consumer lending has been growing in business and falling in, sorry, growing in mortgages and falling in uh, business and agriculture combined. But what are you actually seeing on the ground at the moment? So those trends, it is bank specific. There's certain banks that have been trying to, bring their business and rural lending down because they thought they were overexposed. And then there's certain banks who have been looking to grow. For example, Kiwi Bank and ASB are making real real movements to grow their business lending book because they were very much a home lending bank and now they've realised they need to equalise the balance sheet up to have some business lending exposure. Because as we're finding out now, houses don't always go up in value. As much as some people may not realise that, in the last 10 years probably doesn't illustrate it as strong as it can they do come down, and we're starting to see that now. And banks need to have a, like everyone, a diversified lending portfolio, which is not just home loan and quiet. So we are seeing some banks currently under the current environment where home lending is probably less desirable, less less on the um, increase. They're now looking to look at business lending as a viable place to increase their book based on um, the current environment where you know home lending is taking a bit of a hit. And tell us about uh, how the banks view a loan to a business versus a loan against a home. What sort of security do they need? And, uh, you know, how easy is it to get that loan versus, you know, just having a big old mortgage against a big old chunk of land? Yep, no, good question. So the first, first part of that question is around security structure. So any time you're wanting to borrow money from a bank, the bank will take what's called a first GSA, so GSA is a general security agreement, 
it's basically the equivalent of a business's mortgage. So the bank will take a first charge on a GSA, that then gives them a receivership opportunity. Anytime there's a receivership for business, gives them first rights on all the assets of the business. So that's the security structure. Um, as far as information, yes, it is a it is a more detailed information you need to provide the bank with business plans, historical financials, um, organisational structures. So it's a it's a reasonably intense process to get the money, but the money is absolutely available if you do that properly. I'd advise that probably someone uses a bank lending specialist to help them through that process. Um, and then once you get to that process, the banks, depending on what part of the market you're in, if you're in the SME market, a good rule of thumb to use as a bank, assuming the business is profitable and in a sector they like, would then 50% of the total value of the purchase. Um, you know, that can be more, can be less. As you move up the food chain, you get into corporate businesses and listed entities, they, they generally work on a um, EBITDA leverage ratio, which is anywhere from two to three times. If the business is making 20 million, they'll lend two times 20 million and lend it at 40 million, and they'll do sensitivity analysis on you know, break-even points and so forth. So that's that's a bit of a high-level ballpark on A, what's required, so it's always going to be a first a GSA in the business. If, if you're wanting to leverage up more than 50%, then they might look at your personal security and potentially look at a cross-guarantee from potentially some residential property you own. That's also another example. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted. They've tightened monetary policy. They've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Now, if I'm a um, young, trusting, potential business person, maybe out of university, been working for a couple of years in a business, got some experience and have a cracking idea for a new business or uh, maybe looking even to buy a a small business and and grow it, Uh, can I do that without having some residential property myself or some family who might have it? Can you really, you know, get into this game of owning a business if you don't necessarily own your own home? Yes, you can, but you will need it. You will need equity. So, for example, 
use round numbers here. If the business is costing $500,000, um, rule of thumb is you'll need to put $250,000 of cash in and you'll be able to borrow the remaining $250,000. Rule of thumb. I mean, it could be more, could be less. Um, in that instance, you haven't had to use equity out of a property, but you will have to supply cash. No bank will either, ever 100% debt fund a business. The, the other options are you can ask the current owner of the business to provide vendor finance or leave money in the business. Um, you know, again, unlikely he's going to leave 50% of the business in and allow you to borrow 50%. So realistically, you've got to be prepared, a bit like a home deposit, but instead of it being 20%, it's going to be 50%. But on the counter side to that is the returns from the business will be hundreds and hundreds of times better than the return you'll get on a rental property in regards to yield. When it comes to capital gain, very hard to estimate what the two capital gains and the two various assets will be. Because that's one of the reasons people do buy rental property is that they think they can confidently sell it into a market. There's enough liquidity and people will, there's enough people who understand the business to buy it at the end of the, the day. Uh, how easy is it for people to exit a business that they've built up over five, 10, 15 years? Uh, you know, are there the buyers there who are either building up their own businesses, building market share or or looking to bolt on some useful piece of tech or, uh, you know, maybe have expansion plans and see this thing you've got and know that they can mm. leverage that up into a bigger thing. You know, how, how much demand is there to buy businesses? Yeah, so look, in any given year, there's between 1,500 to 1,800 business sales a year, and that's from billion-dollar businesses at the listed space right down to a fish and chip shop that sells for $50,000. That's the size of the market. Um, you know, here at ABC, we approximately do 35 to 40% of that market, so we sold 400 businesses last year. Um, and there's no shortage of purchases out there. Um, for certain, it's like anything, it's a bit like houses. There's certain houses that will just sell, and there's certain houses that are more difficult to sell. Everything sells at a price. Um, but, you know, for example, healthcare is a very popular sector, if we put a healthcare distribution company up for sale today, we would have 20 people wanting to buy it. If we put a um, niche manufacturer at the bottom of the South Island with some specialised staff who are about to leave um, and they want a top dollar, that might be harder to sell. Um, but what we do know is that everything sells for a price. Um, so there is absolutely a liquid market. I mean, just to give you some stats, we measure our signed confidentiality agreements that are signed each week. Last week, we had over 400 signed confidentiality agreements for people looking to buy businesses. Just That's just an ABC. And so what types of businesses are the um, easiest or the fastest to sell that get the highest valuations? Asking for a friend. What was that, sorry? <laughs> Asking for a friend. You know, what are the most valuable businesses yep. that sell the fastest? The yeah, market? so two, two questions there. One is what sells fast and what's most valuable. So businesses are derived off multiple. So I guess you could answer it one and say, what are the businesses that attract the highest multiples? Um, that they are businesses that have high barriers to entry, really stable cash flows, um, nice recurring revenue. So those types of businesses that have all those attributes, let's talk about a great business we sold recently was a veterinarian business that provided all the software for all the vets around New Zealand. So they're all it was recurring revenue, so the vets all paid a monthly subscription. It's a bit of a need because you know you need a booking system when you when you're a veterinarian company, and there's not there's high barriers to entry because it's 
clever technology and there's not too many competitors. So that sort of ticks a lot of boxes. That type of business can sell from anywhere to six to eight times EBITDA. You then get to the other end of the spectrum where we could be selling a retail shop on Queen Street, which is selling high-end fashion clothes. Now, not a lot of barriers to entry there. They don't have any exclusivity. There's lots of people selling fashion clothes, not only in retail stores, but also online. We would probably be lucky to get one times profit for that type of business. So that really is how you think about it. The more secure the future maintainable earnings are, the higher the multiple and barriers to entry, the more competition, the less secure your future maintainable earnings are, the lower the multiple. It's probably the easiest way to think about it. When you think about, your second question was, what turns over quickly? Generally, smaller businesses sell more quickly because there's less due diligence required. At the bigger end of town, you know, these transactions can take six to 12 months. For example, we sell a lot of bottle, bottle stores um, and dairies. They can sell within two or three weeks. Um, but you know, a supermarket might take six to six to seven months. So it's all around the complexity, complexity of doing the due diligence process dictates the speed of a transaction. Let's talk about the demographics of business owners. There's been this talk for quite a while that the baby boomers who've built these businesses will have to sell out uh, to new businesses coming along underneath or uh, their rivals who may be a corporate or, or whatever. But they will have to sell out because they're all going to want to retire with a big chunk of money. But what actually happens? Because my sense is that the baby boomers either don't want to or don't get around to it or don't need to, and that they're sometimes holding on. Yeah, good question. So we asked, so this baby boomers has been around for, goodness, I've heard about for 10 to 15 years, this flood that's going to come to market. I've heard it my banking days, and I've also heard it here at ABC in my business sales industry. Um, long story short, I don't think the flood will ever happen. Um, but we are certainly seeing post-COVID more baby boomers than we've seen before. And the rationale, which is quite interesting, is the last two years have been really difficult and stressful just because of COVID. It's been something none of us have experienced before. So the last two years has really felt like five years worth of working. They've also, in the last two or three years, the majority of baby boomers own a number of residential and commercial properties. Those asset classes have gone up in value a lot in the last two or three years. Um, and so a baby boomer is now sitting there going, I've had a guts full of work. I'm actually more wealthy than I expected to be at this time in my career because of the asset appreciations of my houses and my commercial properties. And third to that, they're not getting any younger and they've realised, you know what, I haven't travelled overseas for three years. I've only got probably three to five years to do that. I'm out. And we're having a lot of those conversations right now. So I'm probably seeing the highest volume of baby boomers businesses coming to market right now for those reasons. And I suppose that's an opportunity too for people on the other side who are looking to build their businesses. Suddenly there's a bit more uh, opportunity to expand. Um, how, how good are New Zealand small businesses at becoming medium businesses or how good are medium businesses at becoming large ones? You know, we, we're quite good at starting them and sometimes we're quite good at running them as small businesses, but that discipline, those techniques of, you know, turning a 5-10 person business into a 50-100 person business, that requires some different skills or different level of capital. 
How good are New Zealanders at that? Which I'm guessing acquisition is a big part of that. Small yeah, to medium. Not good. Um, and it doesn't happen enough. Um, and a couple of reasons for that. One is a lot of these companies feel capital constrained um, and they the only way they can do it is to bring in external capital, which means diluting their own shareholding. Kiwis aren't good at sharing sharing the shares, as it were. What's that about? Because um, we, we all know that if you've got um, a smaller share but of a much, much bigger pie, your, your slice is... Bigger. <laughs> yeah. It's, I think it's around the control. So you lose control. You know, when you, when you enter these arrangements and you take on a big company, you may have to accept your own skill sets, not the right skill set to run this new company, and that means giving away control. New Zealanders, from what I've experienced, baby boomers are all, can be quite dictatorial, and they like to run things as they always have. And changing that's not something that sits well with them. To the extent they almost prefer to earn a little less but do it the way they've always done it, rather than strive for the skies and incur a lot of change and a bit of um, a bit of a risk along the way. We are inherently cautious people, and we probably saw that during COVID, where we, as a country and as a nation, we seemed okay to be the most cautious country in regards to our COVID response. Um, if you looked at how some of the other countries reacted, it was slightly what's the term I'd use. Less uh, risk averse. Yeah. Less risk averse. Yeah. So, and I think that's spread right throughout our culture. Mm. So, I started off by asking a, a sort of a economics question about productivity, the uh, up and out thing, which the Productivity Commission has looked at. And it's clear we have a productivity problem in New Zealand. Um, it's the reason our wages are 30 to 40% below the Australia, for example, below the OECD average. And it's not improving that quick. The um, traditional view is that we haven't invested enough in infrastructure or in R&D or in business investment. But from your point of view, at the sort of pointy end of this uh, area of some businesses growing and expanding by mergers, by capital investment, bringing in new talent, uh, why are we uniquely less good at growing our productivity than others? Um, it's a big question, that one. I think a couple of things I'd say. The first one is we have this obsession with reinvesting capital into non-productive property assets. Um, I don't think it's good for New Zealand. It stifles employment. It stifles career opportunities. Young New Zealanders probably look around and go, you know what, if I want to really put, if I want to really, you know, extrapolate my career, I'm probably best going overseas because we don't have those big companies based here. Um, and I think that's, you know, when someone, even if you just look at our rich list, Bernard, how many of those guys have built their wealth out of property? I suspect quite a few, what well, I know, majority of them have all got some form of property, so the majority of them probably made it from being, a, being you, know, you know, a big property player. Probably different to when you look at America where it may all be IT people or people out of Silicon Valley. Um, and it may be different to where maybe England, where there are lots of financial types have been in the financial markets and so forth. So I think that's our first problem. We're not putting capital, we're not reinvesting our capital in the right places. Um, and then to the point I made before, New Zealanders, you know, we're not building these big, great companies which can provide employment and prosperity because New Zealanders have an inherent cultural problem around being seen as a shining star, you know, which is our tall poppy syndrome. Um, so I'd probably... Those two things in particular, and I also think a third element, 
is our lack of the NZX listed market um, what do you say, ambition. So New Zealand, it's an interesting statistic here, Bernard, New Zealand is different to every other country. In the majority of countries, two-thirds of companies are listed, one-third are private. Have a guess at New Zealand statistics. One-third are listed, two-thirds are private. So we, we haven't got that career pathways of you start here, you become a mid-sized corporate, straight to listed. Once you're in the listed markets, there's capital. It's easy to get capital. A lot easier than when you're private and you're relying on bank funding. We don't have that pathway. A bit like sporting pathways. The Warriors don't have it, and we don't have it in New Zealand business. We've, you've got a really succinct pathway from starting here to becoming a multinational. So how do we change that? We all seem to agree we need to be more productive. We need to do something different. Even the people who are on the rich list because of the property they owned probably were doing something else. Uh, you know, they might have been a CEO of a company or they might have mm. actually built another business completely, but actually it's the property that's made them the rich. Mm. And they understand this, this isn't right. It's, it's mm. not going to get us, it's not the path to greatness in the long run for everyone. So what sort of interventions or policy changes do you think could change this? Well, I think we really need to think about some incentives. They're going to put two things, education and incentives. So I think one is in the schools, we need to educate our young ones around opportunities of getting into business, starting your own business, buying a business, rather than you know getting rhetoric at home from mum and dad or their grandparents saying, put your first $20,000 into a house. How about you put your first $20,000 into a business? or into the share market. You know, that's just not our, so we need, so education would be my first piece, so the new generation thinks differently than our pre, than their predecessors. Second to that, I think the government can play a role in providing incentives that encourage investment into business rather than into property, whether that's decreased tax rates or, um, you know, whatever it is, but, you know, some financial incentives to people to buy business, invest in business, invest in assets that are going to provide income. Um, and provide jobs um, would be, and I'm not suggesting we hurt property and do capital gains or anything like that, but let's, let's think of things that will promote business ahead of property. So the big political debate for the last 15 years has been capital gains tax or not capital gains tax. And those people who promoted it have argued this was our pathway to higher productivity. By having a capital gains tax, we effectively reduce some of those incentives to put leveraged money into land, property, residential, commercial property. And we encourage the incentives to put money into other types of investments. Uh, you're not so keen on a capital gains tax, though. Why, why is that? Um, look, to me, I'm all about putting incentives in to promote something ahead of something else. I don't want to punish an asset class that has been good for New Zealanders. Um, I'll be more interested in providing extra incentives to an asset class that has been less looked after. Um, no, I just don't think it's going to work for New Zealand, given the exposure that all of us, a lot of people have to property um, by punishing those people down the track. I'd way prefer it if we just put extra incentives to move that money away from property into businesses. I think it would be a more positive outlook. And another area that people talk about is allowing international investment into New Zealand companies and assets. We have one of the most restrictive mm. uh, arrangements in the world. 
from your point of view, at the uh, engine room of business transactions, you know, w- w- how important is it? Really important. No, I guess I'd say I'm a strong supporter of international investment. Um, you know, we, we are part of the world. I don't think we should close ourselves off. I mean, we, we're closed off enough as it is, being where we are from a location perspective. Um, I really think we should encourage overseas investment. We have lots of great companies. We don't have as much capital as other countries. Other countries like New Zealand, they like doing business in New Zealand. That would really inject a lot of economic stimulus into New Zealand. It would provide unemployment, employment, and it would provide us with the opportunity for these small to medium-sized companies to expand. So I think you know that's, that's something that we really need to focus on, and that would be something that I would really be heavily, heavily endorse. And just finally, on sources of capital for people who are building businesses um, or maybe selling businesses or finding pools of capital to help them merge or grow, uh, we haven't, a lot of the private equity, venture capital, you could call it family-run money, Very which awesome. isn't necessarily a bank mm-hmm. or isn't necessarily the public stock markets, and it's, they don't need to advertise how much money they've got or what they do. Could you? But you've you've seen it up close and personal and been involved. How big is the scale of this you know, private private equity, family, venture capital money? It's huge. Um, it's, these are people I deal with literally on a daily basis. So you've got probably seven to eight meaningful private equity companies in New Zealand. You probably have double that in Australia. And then you've obviously got many more in America. The big American companies have just made some recent investments in New Zealand. Um, KKR invested into a company here recently, which is one of the biggest ones out of America. Um, and then the Australian private equity firms have been here for years, you know, at least the last 10 they like, they like New Zealand. Um, these private equity firms traditionally have raised two or 300 million every five years. So there's deep pockets there. We also have family offices who, again, have hundreds of millions at their disposal to reinvest in business. Um, and then venture capital, I guess, is slightly different. They're looking for different. They're looking more at the startup end of um, the market. But for actual um, mature companies, you've got private equity family offices who are very active um, and you know, absolutely looking for opportunities. But they, they are restricted in size and sector. So you really need to be doing, as a minimum, two to three million EBITDA for them to be interested and they do have, they are quite specific on what type of sectors they like. But absolutely, that is an option. And they are always circling and looking for great companies. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi. Kia he Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.